This evening, I'm going to look at just for a few minutes, uh, John 1, verses 1 through 4. So if you wanted to grab the Bible, you can turn there, John 1, 1 through 4. As we've said each week, we've done this sermon series. Uh, this is not normally how we would preach, uh, and especially tonight. This is more of a, a theological lecture, for lack of a better term, uh, we're going to use John 1, 1 through 4 to kind of root us a little bit in the Scriptures, and then from there, we're going to launch up and look at tonight, we want to look at the Son as we're looking at our triune God. Tonight, we want to look at the Son of God. So let's open John 1 here in verses 1 through 4, and let me pray for us as we read the Word. Father, we do pray that you would... Reveal to us truth tonight from these four verses and from uh, this lecture slash sermon tonight. We pray that you would teach us things about your Son, and that we would find that we are reveling in Christ our Lord. It's in his name that we pray, amen. So John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Here ends the reading of God's Word. I want to begin here with uh, John 1 and just these first four verses here this evening. And three things become crystal clear from these verses if we just think about them quickly together. First, you'll notice that the, world, the Word is eternal. John begins and he says, in the beginning, and you and I, our minds are immediately to run to Genesis 1 when we hear in the beginning, in the beginning was God. And so we're immediately to think when we hear in the beginning in John 1, we're to think this word that was in the beginning, this is an eternal word, the word from everlasting. Second, the word was in relationship with God. That is, the Word doesn't simply exist, but it exists from the beginning in close connection with God, John says. The Word was with God, in relation with God. But then we get to the third point, and there he says that the Word was God. And that's an interesting addition. We have that this Word was eternal. We have that the Word was in personal relationship with God. It was with God. But now we're told that not only was this word eternal, not only was it with God, but this word is God, was God. And so it's distinct from God, and yet here we're told itself is God. It is this word that John is speaking about. It is not simply another thing, but it is God himself, and yet it is distinct from God. Well, how do you explain that? Well, it is that God the Father and God the Son are here both articulated. We have the triune Godhead. 
Remember Dan Wallace, a, uh, he's a famous Greek scholar. He was one of my seminary professors at seminary. And I remember him walking here through John 1 and showing how in the Greek, with the way that John has used different articles, what we would call the word the, or sometimes he doesn't use the, and how he uses this in these first four verses. And the way that he uses this and he positions the word, it's the most creative and it's the most direct way that he could say that the word is God and yet the word is distinct from God. He said it this way in something I was reading this week. He said the Greek construction here emphasizes the qualitative aspect of the word, which means that the word has all the attributes of deity. It has everything that, the, that God has, all the essence of the Father, though they differed in person. He wrote this. He said, the construction the evangelist chose to express this idea was the most concise way he could have stated that the Word was God and yet was distinct from the Father. And then you get to verse 2, and John simply repeats for emphasis, so as to bring us back full circle to where he began, that this one who was God was also with God in the beginning. The Word is God, and yet the Word is distinct from God. This is the Trinity. This is the second person of the triune Godhead, the Son. I want to go through three questions tonight as we think about the Son together. And the first is this. What have been the primary heresies? When you start speaking about the Son, you are now speaking about the second person of the triune Godhead, so you have to speak about the Trinity. And so the question becomes, the first question I want to address is, what are the major heresies that the church has had to combat through the centuries to safeguard the doctrine of the Trinity? What are those major heresies? And those major heresies are three in number, the primary ones. The first major heresy is what we might call partialism, partialism. The second is what we might call modalistic monarchianism, or it has also been called Sabellianism in the history of the church, and we'll discuss that. And then the third is Arianism, or it has gone by other names such as subordinationism, Arianism or subordinationism. And I'm going to try and walk through these three to answer our first question tonight, what are the major heresies that the church has faced. The first is partialism, partialism. We address this in some of the earlier sermons in this series, this idea that, that there, is a, there are parts to God, which is an abominable idea. And so I won't address this long tonight, but the idea of partialism is that God is a composite being. That is, that he's a composite being whereby there are parts, which are the three persons, and they come together to make this thing that we call God. But we can't speak of God being some category that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are subcategories or participants in. Or if we were to put this in scientific language, we can't speak of God as the genus and the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit as species. 
divinity, by definition, can't be separated from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit are identical to divinity itself. And orthodoxy maintains that God is one in three persons. Partialism is not Christian. The second is what we would call modalistic monarchianism or Sibelianism. During the time of the Reformers, they often called it Sibelianism because there was a false teacher by the name of Sibelius that especially Calvin will do great battle with, as will most of the church at that time. But modalistic monarchianism or Sibelianism has raised its head and it continues to raise its head throughout church history. And the easiest way to define it or to picture it is the illustration is often used of an actor on a stage. An actor on a stage can play different parts as he's on the stage. He can take a mask and he puts on a mask here and he represents this person. Now he takes off that mask and he puts on a different mask and now he represents this person. And then he takes off that mask and he puts on another. And this is modalistic monarchianism or Sibelianism. It's the idea that the father takes off the mask of the father when he becomes the son. And then the son somehow takes off the mask and he becomes the spirit. And modalistic monarchianists are trying to safeguard the monarchy of the Godhead. And they believe that by having three distinct persons that an oligarchy is set up and created. But this undermines the view that God is one in three persons. It's a view held by some heretical teachers today. The United Pentecostal Church, the UPC, as an entire denomination holds to this heretical view of the doctrine of God. So-called Christian music artists, Phillips, Craig, and Dean, were not Christian, but will play on your Christian radio station hold to this view of God. They are modalistic monarchialists. They're Sibelians. But modalistic monarchialism is not Christian. Arianism is the third. And this heresy denies the full deity of Christ. Arians also are very concerned about the singularity of God's being, and so they've argued that the Son's begottenness speaks of some beginning that the Son has. They believe the Son is the greatest of all created beings, but He's created. Since divinity speaks of no beginning, the Son, they believe, is some form of a lesser divine being, and they attribute this to the fact that He is begotten. They say He is inferior in some way to the substance of the Father because He is begotten, He was created, He is a lesser being. Arianism is also not Christian. Today, you have Jehovah's Witnesses that are modern-day Arians. They hold to Arianism. The church has combated this for ages. It will actually be one of the major heresies that the church almost gets turned upside down by in the early centuries. In the, the third and fourth centuries, there will be a vast majority of the church that will begin to buy into 
the heresy of Arianism. And you will have a false teacher that time by the name of Arius that will begin to teach that there was a time that Jesus was not, as he is famously quoted as having said. And you will have the great, one of the great heroes of the early church, Athanasius, who will stand up against contramundum, against the world, as it was said of Athanasius. He stood up against the entire known world as he stood up against Arius and this false teaching that Arius was circulating in the church and taking the church by storm with. Athanasius will be exiled five times by four different Roman emperors. He will be exiled as the bishop of Alexandria. He'll be the bishop of Alexandria for 45 years, and yet he'll spend 17 of those years, those 45 years in exile. He's excommunicated, he's put into exile, and mostly because he held to an orthodox view of the Trinity. There will be such disruption in the church in the early 4th century that Constantine, the Roman emperor, will call together a council of early church fathers to hash this out. And it will be there that they will debate this doctrine of the Son. At this council, they will literally fight over one word. It's even less than one word. They will fight over one letter of one word, what we might call the letter I. It's the letter iota in Greek. And that one little letter, though it is a small letter, it is the difference between orthodoxy and having a God that can save us and a false view of God and a God that cannot save us. The debate raged around this word. Was the son homoousios, that is one substance with the father, homoousios, of the same substance, of one substance, or was he homoousios, just that iota, that's the only difference, of similar substance to the father? And Arius was arguing that he was of similar substance to the father. And Athanasius, along with others like Alexander, will stand up against this false teaching and maintain that no, he is of the same substance with the Father. And they will win the day at the Council of Nicaea in 325. The Nicene Creed will be passed, and in that creed, which we all hold to as Orthodox Christians in this room, it says this, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, homoousios, with the Father by whom all things were made. Those are the major heresies that the churches face regarding the Trinity. As soon as we speak about the Son, we have to speak of the Trinity. The second question is, what do we mean by the Son is begotten? What do we mean? Well, that isn't made up language. That is language that's taken from the Scriptures. For example, in Psalm 2, we have the Father saying to the Son, I have begotten you, says the Father to the Son. Well, what does that mean? that the Father begot the Son. As we saw in John 1, the Son is God. He is with God and He is very God. 
As E.O. Matsko said, it is because the Son is begotten by the Father that he is equal to the Father. Like begets like. Because the Father begets the Son, the Son is like the Father. The begotten is like the begetter. That's what's being communicated in the fact that he is begotten. Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the early church fathers, said it this way. He said, as God, as progenitor, that is the father, as the one who begets, the progenitor is a mighty progenitor. But if it is a great thing for the father to have no point of origin for his noble godhead, it is no lesser glory for the revered offspring of the great father to come from such a root. That is, the father has no beginning, but neither does the son. The Father is considered God, and He's considered glorious in part because He has no beginning. He comes from nothing. And so the Son is also to be revered as He proceeds from the Father and equally has no beginning. Remember, in the beginning, John said, was the Word. He always has been. So again, what does it mean that he's begotten? We address this some in the last sermon in the series, but it is that the Father eternally communicates the divine essence to the Son. It is it flows from the Father. He communicates his divine essence to the Son. Again, let's be clear. The Son never came to be. He has always been. There never was a time that he was not. And he has always been, as we confess this evening from the catechism, equal in power and glory with the Father. And yet the Father is the fountainhead. And the Son is begotten from the Father, begotten, not made, begotten, not created, begotten, not formed. Scott Swain, a theologian, said the relationship between the Father who begets and the Son who is begotten is a relationship between divine persons, not between a divine producer and a creaturely product. It's a vast difference. So in this way, the Son is referred to as the second person of the triune Godhead because He alone is begotten from the Father. He's the second person. Jesus himself will speak of himself as the second person of the triune Godhead when he sends out the disciples there in the Great Commission. He'll say, there go for and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name. Notice it's a singular name. There's a unity in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He places himself second, the Son. correct, call the Son the second person of the triune Godhead, but let's be careful here. There's been a quite a bit of error, especially in recent decades, the past, I would say, three, four decades in evangelicalism about this. There's been some correction over these last five or so years. Some pretty major theologians, theologians that you would all know by name, have been wrong about the doctrine of God over the last few decades in relation to this, where they have argued that within the triune Godhead that the Son is eternally subordinated to the Father, that because He's the second person of the triune Godhead, 
And because he is begotten by the Father, they, are, they have argued that he is eternally subordinate to the Father. That is, that he submits himself eternally to the will of the Father. And they articulated this doctrine, which is wrong, trying to defend a right doctrine, complementarianism. And as they're trying to defend this right doctrine of complementarianism, they made a mess out of the doctrine of the Trinity in trying to do it. They've argued, and some have continued to maintain, that the difference between the persons, that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is not simply of relations of origin. That is, that the Father begets, the Son is begotten, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, but rather they've said that what distinguishes the persons is their relations and eternal authority and submission. That is, that eternally the Son has always submitted to the Father, and the Spirit has always eternally submitted to the Father and the Son. But here's the problem. As soon as you start talking like that, then you're talking about different divine wills. As if the Son has a different will than the Father. And so the Son has to submit His will eternally to the Father. And the Spirit somehow has a different will from the Father and the Son. And He has to submit His will to the Son and the Father. And then all of a sudden you destroyed the Trinity. Because going all the way back to the very beginning of this series, one of the things that we said about God is that He is a simple God. There's no complexity in him. He's a simple being. And if you have different wills in the Godhead, he ceases to be a simple being. You have complexity, and he ceases to be God. The Son is not eternally subordinated to the Father because he and the Father and the Spirit have one divine will. One. Because they are one God. Now, when the Son becomes flesh, when He comes in and He becomes part of this creation and He adorns Himself with humanity, then in His human flesh, He has a different will. He said, I came not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. In his humanity, the Son has a human will that is distinct from the divine will, but eternally, the Son and the Father and the Spirit have always had one will because they are one being. What distinguishes the Father and the Son, it is that the Son is begotten and the Father begets. That's what distinguishes them. Nothing more, nothing less. The Father begets and the Son is begotten. Third, what is the nature of this sonship? What does that even mean then? What does that look like? What's the nature of that sonship? What well, is this? The Son is the primary Son, not only in order of being, but in order of meaning. That is, that every sonship that you and I think about, when we think about it, in humanity, as we think about it in nature, all of that, all the sonship that we see in the Scriptures, they are but shadows pointing to the substance of the sonship that the Son has with the Father. 
We see son used throughout scriptures in reference to various people in relation to God. Adam is called a son. Israel is called a son of God. We are called sons of God as we are adopted into the family of God. But the son, the second person of the triune Godhead, is a son differently. He's a son differently in that he is the son by eternal generation. And all other sonships are but shadows of his eternal generation. In this way, he is the only begotten son of the Father, as we say from that famous verse, John 3.16. He's the only begotten son. We also have Jesus called the Word. As we think about what does it look like that his relationship with the Father. And we saw that in John 1. He's referred to as the wisdom of God, the Word of God of God, the radiance of God. And in this way, we have an analogy not of persons like father and son, but what theologians have called a psychological analogy. That is an analogy that speaks of internal relations. Does this accurately help us understand the nature of the relationship between the father and the son? Well, Sometimes we will even have these analogies side by side in Scripture. We see it in John 1. He is the Word of God, and yet He's also called the Son of God here in John 1. Both of them are put side by side. But what's more helpful for you and I to understand the relationship between the Father and the Son? Is it this this analogy of relation that He is a Son begotten of the Father, or is, is it this psychological analogy that we have that He is the Word of God? That is the very thoughts of God, the very wisdom of God. Again, Scott Swain, in wrestling with this, asks, which is it? Is it the relation between the first and second person of the Trinity more like a relation between two distinct agents, father and son? Or is it more like a relation that is internal to one agent, that is a man in his own wisdom? And he answers this way. He says, both and neither. Given the Son's primacy, uniqueness, and transcendence, we must remember that although there is a true family resemblance between the divine Son and creaturely sons, there is no one-to-one correspondence between the two. All analogies are partial. All analogies break down at some point. I think we can say that the analogy of Father And Son makes it clear that they are two separate persons. It helps us with that. And yet, to think of the analogy of the fact that He is the wisdom of God or that He is the Word of God, that helps to remind us that, no, this God is one being. So it helps to have both in mind, I think. You think of the Son. He is the Son. He is a distinct person, and yet He is the very wisdom of God. He's the very Word of God. And so you automatically run back to the fact that this is one God, one in being. There's no separation or division in their oneness. As the Son, what you see in the Son is true of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he says. He is, as the writer of Hebrews says in Chapter 1, verse 3, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. As Paul says in Colossians 1, He is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, then you look at the Son. 
He's very God of very God. He's light of light. Same in substance, equal in power and glory. You want to know what God is like, you look at the Son. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father, says the Son. So how does the Son differ from the Father? Only by relation. He is the Son and He's not the Father. He generates from the Father and not the Father from Him. That's the difference. few closing thoughts. When you and I understand the divine person of the Son, what it means that He is the eternal begotten of the Father, I think then the incarnation, and then especially the crucifixion, begins to shine in all the brilliance of glory that we are meant to see it in. It's only when you and I begin to understand what does it mean that He is the begotten of the Father, that He is very God of very God, that He has eternally been with God, that He has eternally been God. That you and I then begin to appreciate the incarnation. It's then that we just begin to appreciate the crucifixion. You see, God didn't send an angel. He didn't send a man. God sent God. And God put to death, if we can say it this way, God for the sake of sinners. God sent God. There's no greater sacrifice that He could be given that He could give, and no greater gift that could be received. God giving Himself in sacrificial love for us. And that secondly, I think, leads us to submit to the Son. When you understand, and when I understand that the very Son of God is very God of very God, that He came down from above, that He became part of His creation, that He suffered in the midst of His creation to the point of death, even death on a cross, then all that you are becomes His. You want to give all to Him. How can you not when you begin to understand that? You want to hold nothing in reserve, which leads to the final when you understand this, not only does everything become His, everything you desire becomes Him. Everything you have, you offer, and now everything you want is wrapped up in Him. That's what happens. When we begin to understand that the Son is very God of very God, we will seek everything in Him. When we fail to do so, it's because we fail to understand Him. To know Him and all that He is, to truly know Him, is to seek everything in Him. There's a reason that when Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus there in chapter 3, which I used as a benediction in our service this morning, 
He's writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians. And he says, when I bow before the Father in heaven and I pray for you, what does he pray for Christians? He prays that they might have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of Christ. You say, they're Christians, Paul. They already know the love of Christ. And his answer is, yes and no. He's praying for these Christians that they would know greater its height, greater its depth, greater its breadth and its length. Because he knows that all is found in that. He wants them to find all of their refreshment in that, all of their going forward in that, all of their life in that, all of their knowledge in that. It's that love of Christ. It becomes the lens by which you look at the world through. Paul is saying, if you only knew more, you would seek him more. My favorite quotes in all of church history, my favorite quote of all time from John Calvin is where he is writing about this very idea, and he says this, and I'll just close with this. He's talking about finding all things in Christ, and he says this, if we seek strength, it lies in his dominion. If purity in his conception." If gentleness, it appears in his birth, for by his birth he was made like us in all respects that he might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion. If acquittal in his condemnation, if remission of the curse in his cross, if satisfaction in his sacrifice, if purification in his blood, if reconciliation in his descent into hell, if mortification of the flesh in his tomb, if newness of life in his resurrection, if immortality in the same, if inheritance of the heavenly kingdom in his entrance into heaven, if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings in his kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment and the power given to him to judge. In short, and this is how he summarizes it, in short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, in Christ, the Son of God, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. No other. From him alone. When you understand this is the Son, the Son of God, then you begin to seek everything in him. Everything in him. Let's pray. Son, we give you praise this evening for being our all in all. You who was in the beginning with God, 
who was God and forever shall be God and yet became flesh for our sake. May we know you in all of your divinity and may we know you in all of your humanity. May what we return to you be filled with thanksgiving and praise for the great Savior and Lord and King of all the heavens and the earth that you are. Truly, there could be no greater Savior than God sacrificing himself for sinners. There could be no greater thing to make folly the wisdom of this world could be no greater thing that would humble us and that would also lift our heads. That the very Son of God would come in flesh and suffer and die for us. May we know you more and more and understand more and more what it means that you were begotten of the Father. You who became flesh for us. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen.